Support comes from Empower Missouri, providing in-person and virtual training to become an advocate for Missourians living in poverty. Registration for Empower Missouri's March 27th Advocacy Day is at empowermissouri.org WOA. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. One of the biggest issues in St. Charles right now is the quality of that city's water. It's been a major focal point of the mayoral race, and it's gotten the attention of state lawmakers like Representative Phil Cristofanelli. The St. Charles County Republican joins us on the latest episode of Politically Speaking to talk about why Jefferson City needs to get involved in this issue and a host of hot-button topics that are percolating around the legislature. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. My promise to St. Louis was that I would do the absolute most for each and every person, starting with those who have the very least. What I wanted to do was look and see what other states are doing. We have to be willing to change those laws, that they are balanced and they affect everybody equally. As somebody that grew up in the St. Louis area, North St. Louis County, I didn't know any lawyers growing up. We gotta find long-term solutions to make government better, but also to be able to provide services to people. I don't wanna leave that federal money that we've been leaving all these years on the table. We need to be spending this money to take care of Missourians. I thought we accomplished a lot this year, but a lot more needs to be done. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me in Jefferson City, she covers politics and state government for St. Louis Public Radio. Sarah Kellogg. And joining us for, I believe, the third time, he is a representative who uh, represents part of St. Charles County in the Missouri House. Our guest today is... Phil Cristofanelli from the 104th District. And before we we pepper you with questions, um, can you just remind our listeners what your district encompasses? Sure. It is uh, just changed. So we know we had redistricting in uh, the last uh, in last year. And what, what I have now is mostly St. Peter's. So if you know St. Charles County, it runs from Mugi Road to about Mid Rivers. It tops off around 70. And uh, on the south side, I have 364. And um, let's talk, let's start off talking about St. Charles, particularly the city of St. Charles. Um, you have talked a lot recently about water contamination that has become a major issue in that community. Can you tell our listeners what the issue is and why you feel like state government needs to pay attention to it? Sure. Uh, there are um, two chemicals that have uh, been detected in uh, certain wells from which uh, St. Charles derives its water source in the Elm Point well field. Uh, And as a result of uh, those heightened levels of contaminants, uh, we have had to close a number of our well fields in order to ensure that all of the water that's provided to our residents uh, is uh, within uh, the the Safe Drinking Act's uh, thresholds for, for safe water. And uh, that has put a great burden on the city water supply. Uh, we've had to purchase, um, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of gallons of water from St. Louis County in order to supplement 
uh, our our water supply uh, as a result of these closed wells. Um, and, you know, this isn't a new problem, Jason. Uh, many, many years ago, I think it was in the 70s, there were a number of corporations in and around St. Charles that as a result of some poor practices uh, were um, responsible for allowing these chemicals to uh, reach the groundwater. And um, they have tried over time to contain those plumes of, of the chemical spread. And, and in some cases, they've done a really great job of cleaning that up. But recently, and we test the water very vigorous, vigorously in St. Charles, we have seen upticks, uh, which suggests that, um, uh, you know, some of these chemicals are still around and finding their way into certain areas uh, and are in need of remediation. And so uh, it's not just the city of St. Charles that's involved in this process. Um, obviously, the EPA is heavily involved. There's a Superfund site near this area. Uh, there's also the Missouri Department of Natural Resources that's involved. Um, so some of the corporations that could potentially be uh, at issue uh, are very closely monitoring the situation and the city who who runs the city water supply is also uh, heavily involved and in, in engaged in vigorous testing and analysis to determine uh, one that every day we have safe water to drink uh, in our city and and two uh, we want to find the source of these chemicals and create a plan for eliminating them and and uh, uh, providing a long-term solution to our water needs uh, in in one of our star cities here in Missouri so where where exactly is the state's legislative's role here, since this seems like either a municipal issue or a federal environmental issue? Sure. Uh, you know, uh, ultimately, um, every municipality in the state of Missouri is a creature of state statute. Uh, and I believe that the provision of safe drinking water is a, a fundamental role of government. You know, Jason, I'm a limited government guy, but there's a handful of things that I think we have a responsibility to the citizenry to ensure are provided. And, you know, that's, you know, public safety, that's a basic infrastructure, uh, that's a, a, a free and adequate uh, education. Uh, and I think, you know, access to safe drinking water falls squarely within the role of government. And uh, in, in a situation where we have a municipality that is struggling uh, as a result of, of uh, things that have happened in, in that community that were not their fault, uh, I believe that that the state should step up and provide assistance to ensure that everyone has access to, to safe drinking water. And for that reason, Jason, uh, I did file legislation that would require the Department of Natural Resources to forward uh, to the Attorney General's office any evidence of entities that may have engaged in contamination so that the AG could file a civil suit to recover any damages that are associated with remediating that problem. Uh, further, uh, we are in an age of surplus, as you know, Jason, and uh, I, I think that we're better to spend public resources than ensuring uh, we have access to safe drinking water. And so I am working with the Budget Committee to try to secure appropriations to help uh, remediate some of the challenges that, that our city has experienced as a result of these circumstances. Since Ameren is regulated by the Public Service Commission, would they need to be involved in this process? They are very involved. I've met with Ameren a number of times uh, on this issue. Uh, Ameren has uh, a plan in place for addressing uh, any chemicals that may be associated with 
actions of their entity sometime in the past. Um, they uh, said that they will take responsibility if they, it's demonstrated that uh, the chemicals originated from from their uh, their substations there. Uh, but you know that it's it, we still have a process that we have to go through because uh, they weren't the only corporation uh, that. Um, that was uh, engaged in in these practices back in the 70s. I think there's one. I believe the name was Fidlar. Uh, that uh, it it uh, was doing a lot of the uh, cleanup for for Manhattan Project work, and uh, a number of these chemicals could also potentially be traced to there. And so that's why the city is doing its own independent analysis of the origin of some of these chemicals. And the EPA is also doing an analysis to try to figure out where these, these chemicals came from, who's responsible, and how we can make sure they all get cleaned up. So you mentioned the legislature putting in some dollars. So if Amber doesn't pay to reverse the contamination water, the state would, you know, the legislature would be in a position to kick in that money. So, uh, you know, my my vision is we have very dated water systems in the city of St. Charles. They're many, many, many decades old. They're in need of modification and repair. Uh, and uh, I think that per, through updating and modernizing our, our water supply system, we can be better equipped to deal uh, with the stress of these circumstances. There's also talk of, of moving the wells. Uh, and so it's potential that, that we could get some state investment in helping the relocation of some of those wells. Uh, and so um, I, I think that ultimately taxpayers shouldn't be responsible for um, you know, someone else's wrongdoing. You know, if somebody screwed up, then you know they got to take responsibility for that. But there are uh, places where uh, we can make public investments so that we are better equipped to handle uh, challenges that arise in the provision of, of safe drinking water. Does this provide some pause about cities controlling their own water departments? There's a lot of municipalities out there like mine in Richmond Heights, which a private company is in charge of the water. It, does this kind of provide some pause about maybe cities shouldn't be in this business at all? You know, uh, the debate over the provision of uh, a public resource like water uh, is an ongoing one. Um, and I think that there are many, many merits uh, to be um, addressed in the, in the area of privatization of uh, the provision of water. But ultimately, that's, that's uh, a decision that the community of St. Charles should probably make for themselves uh, whether or not that uh, you know the system we have now is the best way uh, to provide access to to drinking water for our constituents. And you know I could really see arguments on both sides. So the last time you were on the show, you were talking about the passage of legislation known as empowerment scholarship accounts. I want to make sure I get the acronym right because I feel like I've misacronymed that many times. Is that what that's actually called? Yes, uh, oh. the Missouri Empowerment Scholarship Account Program, ESAs. Good. I got that correct. I'm, I'm terrible with acronyms. You, you have filed legislation to actually change that program. Can you explain what you want to do this session? Yeah. Uh, so it really, uh, it's not a, a super dramatic change. Um, as you know, uh, Jason, uh, but for the edification of your listeners, we got, uh, in, I guess it's been two years now, passed the Missouri Empowerment Scholarship Accounts Program, the first uh, private school choice program in the state of Missouri in uh, over 20 years. And uh, that would provide low-income students access 
to up to, uh, I think it's $6,500 scholarship to attend the school of their choosing uh, if uh, they are not receiving the education that they deserve from their, their local school district of residence. Uh, and uh, as a result, we now have uh, over a thousand kids who have received these scholarships and, and been provided with a school choice option that they otherwise would not have been able to enjoy. And so that uh, is something that I'm really proud to have worked on. Uh, we want to provide a little more flexibility in the program. Uh, right now, if you are a student with special needs or on an IEP, uh, you get, I think it's 1.75 times your state adequacy target, which is $6,500 in the amount that that uh, the, the state will spend uh, your on your local education in, in your district. And so we want to use that 1.75 modifier to uh, adjust uh, the scholarship cap for students with special needs that are enrolled in the Missouri Empowerment Scholarship Account Program so that they can have a scholarship that uh, would equal that which uh, the state would have expended on their education uh, if they were enrolled in a public program. And so that's that's what my modification of the ESA bill does. I'm hopeful that that's you know, the next step that we can take in our efforts towards school choice. There's been some criticism that larger religious organizations are taking advantage of the ESA program. What is your response to that? So uh, there are entities known as um, education assistance organizations uh, that are responsible for raising the money and distributing the scholarships to students. Uh, now, they're not allowed to discriminate on the basis of religion in accepting uh, students or placing uh, the students in the school of their choosing. Uh, and uh, it's just a fact that the vast majority majority of private schools, uh, especially the affordable ones in the state of Missouri and across the country, are religiously affiliated. And ultimately, you know, it's up it's up to the parent to decide if, if that environment is the best fit uh, for their kids. And so it doesn't concern me at all that um, that many of these organizations have a religious perspective, because the point of the ESA program is to allow parents to decide their kids' future. And this comes as the legislature has started to talk more seriously about open enrollment. Uh, what is your thought on this and how do you think open enrollment should work in Missouri? Sure. I, I am a, a believer in all forms of, of school choice. I want there to be, uh, you know, an array of options uh, for parents to decide. And I want that to be both in the public and private uh, space. And so open enrollment is an idea that would allow uh, students to attend another public school uh, other than the one that they happen to be assigned based on their residency. And so if you were in Francis Howell, which is you know my school district, uh, and you wanted to attend Fort Zumwalt and Fort Zumwalt had a spot for you, uh, you would be able to transfer into Fort Zumwalt if they wanted to take you on. Uh, and uh, the money that the state would uh, allocate to uh, pay for your education would follow uh, follow you to the district that uh, has received you. And that, I think, can do a lot to address, uh, you know, equitable education, uh, because it's just a matter of fact that uh, even the best public school may not be the best fit for for a particular child, there may be some services or or some sort of um, you know approach to education that is is a better fit for your kid in the adjacent school district, and so parents should not be unduly constrained 
by these type of boundaries. Uh, we should provide choice. And I think the open enrollment bill does that. But, uh, you know, my my uh, only critique uh, and where I will uh, really insist upon um, uh, expanding the open enrollment bill is to include our charter schools. Uh, right now, um, they uh, could not receive new students under the open enrollment bill. And in my view, uh, charter school is a public school. And uh, if uh, they have an open seat and a, a student wants to attend uh, a charter under our open enrollment program, they should not be unfairly excluded. The Missouri State Teacher Association were here last week and they oppose open enrollment saying, yeah, sure, it's opt in for schools to accept students, but it's not optional if students want to leave those other schools. And there was kind of a worry about maybe consolidation of schools and rural areas. Kind of what is your response to that concern? Well, I think we should look a little deeper into why. Why does a student want to leave that school? That should be a warning sign uh, for the school district if you have students on mass uh, trying to depart for a, a new area. Uh, and really, I mean, those are the type of market signals that uh force institutions to reform themselves and, and do better. Uh, and that's why we see, uh, you know, uh, institutions in the private sector uh, that will change their policies and practices in order to attract uh, more people to their institution. And so uh, I think it's healthy uh, when schools uh, have uh, parents who are empowered to be there by choice uh, because it encourages them to provide a better product uh, to those parents and those kids. We'll be right back after this quick break with State Representative Phil Cristofanelli. If you have a smart speaker, you have access to the entire world of NPR and St. Louis Public Radio. All the latest news and all the captivating stories. Activate our voices with yours by telling your smart speaker to play St. Louis Public Radio. And we're back on Politically Speaking with Republican State Representative Phil Cristofanelli. He represents a portion of St. Charles County in the Missouri House. So it's 923 on a Wednesday. You have to get into session in about uh, 40 minutes. So we're going to try to hit a bunch of issues relatively quickly. So one of the things that I've noticed is like the governor made a state of the state speech, which was very budget oriented. We're going to ask you about I-70 and some other issues. But it seems like the focus on the first couple of weeks of the legislatures have been on very controversial issues. Something that Sarah has been covering a lot has been bills that um, ban trans girls from playing girls sports. There's bills about banning gender affirming care for trans people. Is there a disconnect between like what the governor wants and what the legislature is doing in these first few weeks of session? Well, it's certainly fair to say that, that those were not issues brought up uh, during the governor's state of the state. But I couldn't speak to, to what he may or may not uh, want us to prioritize uh, in the session. You'd have to ask uh, the governor that. Uh, I will tell you that, um, you know, certainly those bills have been filed uh, and that's not the first time that they've been filed. We've seen these bills uh, many times before. And this is uh, a, a new issue. Um, there's certainly a growing number of, of uh, it seems, kids that are identifying in this way. And uh, we're trying to find a way uh, to address uh, some of the, the changes that that uh, have arisen as a result of, of this, this um, new situation. And uh, I, I don't know what the outcome will be. Um, it's always a, uh, a terribly 
uh, emotional topic for many people and uh, a difficult one to thoughtfully legislate on because one, it's very new and it deals with people's personal lives and, and people are, have a, a, a very divergent views about what what the right course is. But, um, you know, our legislature is designed to uh, tackle tough issues. Uh, and, you know, just because a bill is filed, uh, as you know, Jason, uh, a lot of times that doesn't necessarily mean that it's it's fast tracked to be a law. Uh, we have uh, in our constitution, uh, the Missouri Senate uh, that, uh, you know, you have unlimited filibuster power. And so before anything becomes a law, there needs to be a lot of of consensus and and uh, that it's the right way forward. And so uh, I know people uh, when they see certain things filed uh, have have an emotional reaction to that, and and maybe that's justified. But uh, I encourage everybody to take a deep breath, let the legislative process work, and um, uh, you know these things will will find uh, a natural conclusion in in due time. We're going to get to the Senate in just a second on these bills. But, you know, I think it was the Missouri Independent was one of the first to report that there were more bills filed against trans girls participating in sports than there were potentially trans athletes wanting to play sports in Missouri. And that's just one of the topics. What are your thoughts on what seems to be just a deluge of these bills that are targeting the LGBTQ community? Yeah, I, I mean, these things are coming up in in the media. And I think that uh, what we're seeing in the legislature is a result of the intense media focus that has been on these issues. But as you mentioned, you know, it's it's been revealed in committee that I think there are under five, uh, you know, students uh, participating under uh, the MISHA, which is the Missouri's uh, Athletic uh, Accreditation Association. Uh, there's only five students that are, are not participating in uh, the uh, sport that uh, corresponds with their biological sex. And so um, I, it doesn't seem that that uh, that type of activity is super widespread. Um, and uh, I think it's certainly fair to say that we had maybe a disproportionate uh, amount of, of focus on it uh, because, you know, uh, I, when I ran for office, it was because I believed we needed to do uh, school choice for kids and and join many other states and and doing comprehensive education reform. Uh, I believed that we needed to uh, eliminate Missouri's income tax so that we could be more like states like Texas and and Tennessee. And uh, I, I think that we're in a place where our, our urban cities are shedding population. Uh, we've lost a congressional district in the past de decade. Uh, and really, my hope is that the legislature uh, could address issues that will grow our economy uh, and, include, and, and encourage people to relocate uh, in our state. And I, I just hope that we take on those hard issues uh, before we get into the social politics uh, of, uh, of the current moment. One more on the specific topic, which is the Senate yesterday held a hearing on legislation that would even ban the discussion of sexual orientation and gender identity in schools. It's been labeled as a more restrictive version of the Don't Say Gable legislation in Florida. You know, Jason and I were talking earlier, if you were to be elected governor of Missouri, you know, it, it's questionable whether or not they were able to say you were the first gay governor of Missouri. You know, thoughts on this? Well, uh, you know, uh, like I said before, a lot of things are filed in the Missouri legislature. And when it, uh, you know, actually comes to the number of bills that we pass, um, it, very few of them ultimately end up becoming law. And um, I think it's OK for us to have conversations 
about ideas, even if they aren't very well thought out ideas, even if they aren't uh, ideas that are easily ad administered. But uh, I believe in the legislative process. And I believe if an idea is not ready for prime time, that very often that that idea will will not ultimately become a law, and so um, it, you know we can we can sit here and wring our hands over you know this legislator filed this or this legislator filed that, uh, but we need to let the process work. Uh, we'll have a, a dialogue on the merits of of some of these proposals, as you mentioned. You know some of them as they're drafted. Uh, are nearly impossible to administer. And so um, that's uh, that's why we have committees. That's why we have a cooling chamber uh, in the Missouri Senate. And and I am I am uh, looking forward to working through the actual merits of issues. And we will separate the silly ones from the ones that uh, need to become a law. Plus, you mentioned the Senate. You feel like these are going to reach kind of intractable opposition in the other chamber. Uh, you know, um, the Missouri Senate is very unique in, in its size. It's it's one of the smaller upper chambers uh, in the country. Uh, and there's a culture that um, we almost never do what's called move the previous question. Uh, and that is to close debate uh, on a topic where senators still feel the need to speak. Uh, in fact, I can only think of maybe two PQs that have been uh, signed in my seven years and they were for really big issues. I think one was right to work and one was a weird situation surrounding a special session that they didn't want to go on forever. Uh, and so uh, I, I think it's highly unlikely that a PQ is used on, on some of these proposals. Uh, and I think that, uh, it, you know, you have a lot of strong feelings about these particular issues in the upper chamber. And so it is very likely that they will receive vigorous debate. Uh, and uh, ultimately, unless the idea is fairly narrowly tailored, very well thought out and something that is common practice in, in a number of other states across the country, I don't think it's likely that it'll become a law. Uh, moving on to sports betting. Uh, you have sponsored legislation in the past that would legalize sports betting. And as of this taping, you have a hearing on that legislation this early evening afternoon. You know, is this the same bill as last year? Or, you know, what are the main components? If anything, you know, what has changed? Yeah, it is the same bill as last year. I mean, it's just common sense at this point that Missouri needs to join the vast majority of other states that have a, provided a legal framework for uh, people to participate in sports wagering. Uh, it's just the reality that right now um, anyone can go on their, their cell phone and download an app that's not legal and doesn't have any regulatory oversight and doesn't provide any revenue for the state and participate in sports wagering. If you wanted to engage in legal sports wagering, you need only cross the border uh, in you know St. Louis or Kansas City and go over to one of the states that does permit uh, uh, the uh, the participation in, in illegal sports gaming framework. And so uh, we're just, you know, being silly at this point that we haven't passed uh, a sports a sports wagering bill. Uh, and that's why I've filed it for, I think, four years now. Uh, my bill is very simple. It provides a, a framework for uh, legal and regulated sports wagering through uh, Missouri's uh, gaming licensed institutions. Uh, and there's collaboration with, you know, all the relevant stakeholders. Many of our big uh, sports franchises are on board. Uh, all of the the data companies, I, I think, are on board at this point. And uh, really, uh, the the population uh, and are overwhelmingly in favor, from what I've heard, uh, of allowing this activity. So I'm hopeful that the legislature steps up to the plate 
and delivers uh, on this issue whose time has gone. Well, you know, it is early February. Do you feel like an early year hearing date definitely helps you out? Do you think? You know, uh, earlier is always better in legislative politics. As soon as you walk in the door in January, the clock is ticking uh, and uh, the, it's working against you. All those politics I talked about uh, in, in how the Senate works uh, tends to slow things down. And so you are fighting against the clock uh, there and uh, it, you got to move as quick as possible possible. So I think it's great that the speaker has chosen to make this a House priority. Uh, and we're going to have a hearing on that later today uh, that I'm very, very much looking forward to. I know that there are many members of the Senate that would also like to see uh, this advance. And so I'm hopeful that this year we can get something done. Speaking on the Senate, you know, your bill is just sports betting. When it went over to the Senate, the idea of a video lottery video lottery terminals, VLTs, were kind of lumped in there. You know, is there any way to maneuver through this issue without also legalizing video lottery terminals in places like gas stations and fraternal bars? Well, legislating is the art of the possible. Uh, you know, um, I, I don't have a strong opinion about uh, whether, you know, tertiary issues should be added into the sports wagering bill. Uh, my general preference is we take each bill by its merits and try not to add you know, uh, other issues into um, what should be a single subject. But uh, after seven years, I'm, I'm very used to things getting uh, jammed up together. And that's just the way that, that it very often works. And so uh, there certainly are people that would like to see video lottery terminals uh, expanded in the state of Missouri. Uh, I think we can talk about that uh, and hopefully find uh, a middle ground that uh, allows us to move forward on what is, I consider, a priority issue for, for the state of Missouri. I can guess one group that does have an opinion on video lottery terminals, that's casinos, including a casino that's in St. Charles County. And I think that they probably would rather set the legislature on fire than legalize those. Is that going to be kind of a big problem if that gets attached to this bill? I, I mean, you've certainly touched on the sensitive nature of, of gaming politics. Uh, there's a limited number of gaming licenses, and we have established uh, gaming entities in the state of Missouri. As you mentioned, there's one in my backyard. Uh, that's a really big part of our economy. Uh, and, uh, you know, um, they're all professionals. And this is a, a question of, um, you know, limited resources and how we can best serve the people of our state. And, you know, the legislative process is designed to uh, bring people to the table to negotiate. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm an attorney, Jason, in my private practice, and, you know, every dispute that I've been involved in people start out is, I will never accept this, or I will never accept that. Well, let's talk about that. And the, you know, the purpose of being here is negotiation. And both of them, uh, both sides of, of this issue have goals that they want to achieve. Uh, and so uh, I think that once everybody lays their interests on the table, they may find that there is uh, a compromise, a solution that will allow them to move forward uh, and not act as as adversaries. And, you know, maybe it's impossible, but our job is to try to find a way to work through those conflicting interests. That's why the people sent us here. And I think that's what we're going to work on. One of the bills that the House passed, I think last week, was a ballot item that would raise the threshold for constitutional amendments from a simple majority to 60 percent. This has been a major Republican priority. Why does your caucus want this before voters so badly? 
Well, you know, I filed this many, many years ago. I think my first year in the legislature, uh, I filed a, a bill very similar to the one that we passed um, last year. And uh, my view, Jason, has always been that uh, our Constitution is our highest law. It is a statement of our values and beliefs, uh, and it uh, affirms what we consider to be the fundamental rights of our populace. But unfortunately, of late, it's it's become more like a statute book. Uh, our our Constitution is remarkably long and filled with very detailed policy measures uh, that really aren't designed uh, for a constitutional setting. Uh, and uh, as you know, Jason, if there's a problem in a bill that we pass in the legislature, uh, you know, I passed one last year on virtual schools. Well, this morning I had a hearing on the follow-up bill uh, to our virtual school legislation because, you know, the way we passed it and the way it implemented, it just didn't really work. But when you pass a statute and you put it in the Constitution, you want to change it later, you're looking at a very, very expensive and long and arduous ballot proposition campaign to ultimately modify anything that was put in the Constitution previously. And so I think we need to uh, modify our Constitution uh, very, very carefully. And there should be wide consensus uh, that something is a well-vetted good idea before it goes into our highest law. And I think that's the goal of this bill, which would set the threshold uh, for a constitutional change at 60% uh, of voter approval. Uh, and it's something that I'm pretty comfortable with. So during debate last week, you know, kind of the main thing the Democrats repeatedly pointed out is the ballot language on it. And including the first part of that possible uh, constitutional amendment would be that only, you know, citizens properly registered would be able to vote. And they called that, you know, ballot candy used to mislead voters instead of and to kind of distract from what's actually being done. What's your response to that? You know, I, I've yet to uh, see a ballot proposition that didn't have a um, uh, a ballot summary that doesn't tell the whole story because as you know it's impossible uh, the the documents that we're actually putting into all of the into the Missouri Constitution uh, are very very long and we can't put them all on a ballot and so every ballot proposition that I've seen uh, come come forward tells a very abbreviated story that uh, often corresponds with the preferences of the proponent. And so uh, insofar as that's the case here, I would say uh, that is a uh, custom that is uh, as old as time. Uh, and, uh, you know, we can have debates over what that ballot language will be. But when it comes down to it, there's going to be some people that like it, some people that don't. And ultimately, the voters get to decide. And then why lead with that? Why not range it? You know, if, if the Senate were to look at this and maybe change the arrangement of it and it, that language would be third, you'd be comfortable with that? You know, uh, I, I think if that's what the legislature decides to do, sure. You know, uh, that's why we have that's why we have these debates. Um, but uh, ultimately, I, I don't think that we're ever going to have ballot wording that everybody says that's that's just the perfect one. Uh, and so um, I, I, I welcome the debate on on what uh, the House is structured. And I'm, I'm sure we'll see changes along the way. Do you think that this will suffer the same fate as the ballot initiative in Arkansas that tried to raise the threshold. I've talked about on this show many times that Arkansas is not a socialist wonderland as it was when my mom lived there and Democrats ruled there. It's a very Republican state, and this failed miserably there last year. Why is this not going to fail in August of 2024? 
Well, Jason, I've stopped engaging in political prognostication because I'm so uh, regularly wrong. Uh, but I will tell you that, um, you know, I, it's hard to say. I thought that uh, when we decided to uh, modify uh, Clean Missouri and address redistricting again, I didn't think that that was likely. Uh, to pass. Um, and in fact, you know, not a lot of resources were spent trying to pass uh, the legislature's modification uh, of Queen Missouri, but but it ultimately did pass. Uh, and uh, so it, I think it it depends. It depends on the mood of the people. It depends on, uh, you know, voter turnout. It depends on the political circumstances at the time of the election. Uh, and it's it's just too early to say that something's destined to fail or pass. And uh, you know, whatever I say, it's it's probably going to be wrong in in my uh, in my history. So I will also concede that I didn't think that that uh, anti clean Missouri thing would pass either. So we we're both wrong sometimes. Uh, before I let you go, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about the governor's plan to expand I seventy. I think that would actually start in St. Charles County, um, maybe not in your specific house or the Senate district that you're going to be running for, but it still would impact your county quite a bit. What do you think about that? And do you think that more money should be pulled from the surplus to expand all of I-70 and not just portions of it? Well, as I mentioned earlier in the program, Jason, we're in a time of remarkable budgetary surplus as a result of, you know, federal spending and, and higher revenues than expected. And uh, I want to say we have a surplus of over six billion dollars. Uh, and so that's a really good opportunity, in my view, uh, to take on a, a really big project that could have a transformative effect on our state. Uh, I'm less excited about, uh, you know, uh, increases in long term uh, spending obligations uh, because, you know, that surplus may not always be there. But, uh, you know, improving our public infrastructure and transportation uh, are often one time uh, big investments that we make to to make Missouri more accessible, uh, more uh, friendly to to business enterprises, and uh, help grow our, our economy and population. And so, I think it's a fantastic idea uh, to expand uh, Highway 70. It is the major artery that runs through through our state. Uh, and, you know, we're at the heartland of the country and we need to be uh, open and accessible to all who want to pass through. And so uh, I'm very excited by that possibility. Uh, I know there's a lot of details that we still have to work out, but uh, I could, couldn't think of anything better to to use uh, this, this surplus on. Well, Representative, thank you so much for spending your hour before you have to go into session with us. Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is a part of the University of Missouri, St. Louis. How could people find out more about you on social media, through your official website, unofficial website, anything, any place on this Internet where you want to be found? Sure. Yeah. Uh, on Twitter, uh, if you like to be entertained, go to at PHL Christo. I try, try to keep it interesting there. Uh, I have a Facebook page. You can find me there. Uh, I'm running for Senate. There's a website coming soon. And uh, I appreciate the opportunity to connect with your listeners. Member of the SAS caucus, correct? I've been I've been informed that occasionally I can be a bit sassy in the legislature. I don't necessarily know if that's true. I, I try to be diplomatic and respectful, but uh, sometimes, uh, you know, certain actions in the legislature deserve a little bit of sass <laughs> on that sassy note uh we'll be back next week until then so long
from St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking.